everybody. Welcome back to The Undiscovered You, a podcast for people who feel like they have so much more to offer, but are somehow stuck where they are. I'm your host, Kimberly Johnston, and this season, we're talking all about playing the hand you're dealt. I'm extremely excited to have Maisie Kersey here with us today. Maisie's a university student who had an interesting hand that was dealt to her, and we're going to talk a little bit about overcoming a eating disorder. We're going to talk about changing of life. We're going to talk about how she played the hand that she was dealt. So Maisie, thank you so much for coming on today. It's great to have you. Yeah, it's really exciting to be here. Thank you for having me. (laughs) So Maisie, tell me a bit about um, your story. Just let's back up a little bit and talk to me about kind of where you grew up um, and how you ended up in the position that you did um, where you recognized that you had an eating disorder. So, um, yeah, I, I like to think that I don't have a very exciting story to start off with, but um, I had, <laughs> um, yeah, a really lovely upbringing. Like I was born born and bred in Sutton, um, <laughs> so I'm a local girl. Um, and yeah, I live with my mum and dad and I have two older sisters um, as well, which, you know, it's a blessing in disguise, really. <laughs> um yeah, and we we got along really well uh, growing up. We were really close. We are really close. Um, and yeah, I I went to a local school um, and was academically, um, yeah, academically, I didn't I didn't find it very challenging in all honesty, um, which was great was great, and that's that's a good thing to have for sure. Um, but then. As I got through high school, um, I started to realise that uh, academia was starting to really, how do I even put this? It started to get to a point where it was becoming a bit more of a problem. Hmm. Um, So we, yeah, we kind of pushed through and we thought, okay, it's just me trying to get the best grades that I can so that I can get into uni. and then everything will be okay, really. Um, and it was a it was a real control thing. So um, for a bit of context with me as well, um, I'm also um, diagnosed with OCD as well. That happened when I was seventeen. So yeah, it's been a bit of a roller coaster. But getting through high school, struggling with OCD, not getting that diagnosis until that point, um, but then realizing that yeah academia was starting to become a real problem and I was really pushing and pushing to get the best grades that I could um but this then became quite obsessive and I started to realize that I couldn't get the control that I wanted over my studies because obviously you don't you don't find out your grades until after you've done the exams and it comes comes around to results day and it all kind of pins on that day. Um, so I I started subconsciously at first to think I'm going to take control of other aspects of my life. I'm going to take this opportunity to lose some weight and to get fit and healthy. And that's genuinely how it started. It never, never started with bad intentions. Um, and yeah, that meant I started running. Um, but I would run nearly every single day. 
And then I slowly started controlling more what I was eating to the point of barely eating anything at all. Um, and then when I was, yeah, it was when I was 17 as well. So that was a busy year for me. Um, <laughs> that was, <laughs> was an intense year, but um, I started to realize that this was becoming more of a problem. And uh, the people around me, my mum and dad and my sisters were starting to say, Maisie, you, you don't look good. Like this is, this is getting to a scary point. You look too thin and too frail and you're not eating enough. And I didn't really want to listen in all honesty. It was, it was a lot easier just to kind of block them out and be like, you guys are wrong. I'm going to carry on with where I'm at. Um, so then, yeah, that was when I was 17 and I was currently going through, uh, therapy for OCD, uh, under CAMS and that was great for treating the OCD, but when it came to the eating disorder, they, yeah, my parents expressed concern to my therapist and her response was, Maisie, don't make it another one of your things. Yeah, so it it properly, yeah, shut that down. So I put it back in its box, carried on with my kind of weight loss um, expedition, I guess. And um, it came to results day and I'd done really well in my exams and I was off to uni. So I got into uh, University of Sussex to study theatre and performance. And yeah, that's when things started to take a bit of a shift. <laughs> what I think is really interesting about this story is a lot of times, you know, you almost think that eating disorders come from people when they don't have a great upbringing or, you know, there's something really kind of wrong. And actually you had this really lovely supportive family. So you have these supportive sisters, these supportive parents. And what, I, what I'd love to dive into here a little bit is, you said you started to recognize that something was wrong. And then you said that your sisters and your parents did. What happened in your brain in terms of when you recognized something was wrong, did you just dismiss that? Or did you say like, what, what, what went through your head basically when you started to recognize something was wrong? So when I started to recognize there was a problem um, and that was starting to line up with what other people were saying as well, um, to start off with, I pushed it away. Um, I saw it as weakness start off with of actually you are just not trying hard enough and you need to make these thoughts go away so that you can lose some more weight mm. um but then I I actually remember one morning um I I think it was the night before that I was so starving hungry that I ran downstairs and quickly had to grab something from the kitchen and it was as I was eating it, I was thinking, this isn't right. Hmm. Like, this isn't a normal thing to be doing to get to that point of hunger where you're like, I have to eat something right now and it's out of your control. Hmm. So um, the next morning, I got up really early and I made a doctor's appointment. Um, I don't really know what was going through my head at that point because everything in my head was just kind of saying don't do it don't do it don't do it and yet I still did it um 
I made the doctor's appointment, went downstairs, told my mum and then went out for a run. So, <laughs> so you know, swings and roundabouts yeah. with that one, really. But um, yeah, and then I, I ended up going to the GP with my mum and they were amazing. They were absolutely incredible. So I had a really positive outcome from that experience, really. And I can I can tell you a little bit about that um, a yeah. bit later. But yeah. Fabulous. Okay, so so that's great. And and what I what I what I just want to point out here is that you had to proactively take that step. You had to recognize what was going on and say, actually, this isn't right. And then you are the one that did it because no matter how many people tell you externally, a lot of times you're like, they don't understand, they don't get it, they're not in my head, they don't, they don't see the problem and they don't recognize it. And I think it's I, I just want to encourage any any listeners who are dealing with something is you're the one that has to get the help is the first thing. And there is help out there and, and actually recognizing it within yourself and starting to sort of hear the echoes of the people around you that are telling you this isn't okay. And actually take a second, take a beat to say, is this some kind of behavior that actually is destructive as opposed to behavior that is benefiting me? Because, you know, running is great. Eating less is great. Focusing on your diet is great. But as you say, when it slips into that zone of controlling it to the point where you're intaking, you know, 100 calories a day or less, you know, that's actually you're, you've slipped into something bad. Oh, absolutely. And I think, yeah, that definitely resonates with me of having to be proactive um, because I had people telling me for months um, that something was wrong and I, I wasn't doing a good thing. Um, but it was only when I had that kind of like wake up call from my own brain that it, it actually made me realize, no, this isn't right. And it, even if it's that really like whispering voice and it's not very loud, it was just that thing of, I deserve more than how I'm treating myself right now Mm -hmm. and how my brain is making me behave. Mm -hmm. And it's capturing that tiny little, little fragment really and holding on to that and then you slowly realize as you get better that that fragment gets bigger as your self-esteem gets bigger again so um yeah it's about it's about finding that inner voice and clutching onto it and trying to trying to amplify that amidst all the other noise and negative thought patterns going on in your head I love that and it's so easy to ignore that isn't it it's so easy to ignore that little whisper of hope that's there so I want to go back to actually you going to uni because this is a pretty seminal part of your story. So um, university, you're studying drama. I cannot imagine that studying drama and being with other drama students and people who are going into acting, et cetera, might be the best environment for somebody who is suffering with anorexia. Yeah. So, um, yeah, to take you back to before I got into uni mm. and then going into that, um, so I went for drama school auditions um, and that was one of the most toxic experiences I have ever had. Oh, it wow. was, it was not a nice environment. You had people shouting at you and basically telling you you're not good enough, which I didn't need anyone to tell me because I was already having those voices inside my head from my eating disorder. Um, And you're surrounded by people that 
you think are skinnier than you that are prettier than you and it's just it's a nightmare environment to be in um so when I eventually went to uni um I had well I went to uni and then three days in I got diagnosed with anorexia um so (laughs) I basically I tried to navigate going back and forth from London Mm -hmm. because my treatment was based in uh, Springfield Eating Disorder Hospital in Tooting um I yeah I tried to figure out doing both uni and treatment at the same time um and that basically meant that every six days I had to get a train back home do my therapy the next day in their outpatient service um and then get a train straight back to uni again so I was going to and from Sussex every single week Um, And I never could settle into uni. I could never fully immerse myself in my degree. Um, And yeah, it just, it, it was a a really dark time, a really dark time. Um, So it, it got to a point, I did that for a whole semester. Um, And it got to Christmas and I spoke with my, she was an amazing um, eating disorder nurse that I got assigned um I spoke with her and she just said Maisie you've got to make a choice you've got to make a choice here of are you are you doing yourself justice um by trying to do this degree but trying to do treatment at the same time and not really committing to either um and that was a real turning point for me of actually realizing I've got to make a choice now to put my degree on hold um, and focus on treatment to get better so that what I thought I'd do would be to go back to my degree but that's that's a story for later uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, or I can try and carry on as I'm doing and not succeed at either hmm. um, so I had to make the really difficult decision to go on temporary withdrawal from uni which for the Maisie who had worked so hard to get those grades I then wasn't even well enough to stick at the at the prize really interesting (laughs) um which was really hard that was something really hard to come to terms with Mm. but it then meant that that Christmas I moved back home um started doing outpatient treatment and was put on the waiting list for the day unit which I can tell you a bit about later so, I mean, that just, there's so much strength in the story that I, I'm just astounded by. In fact, it's, it's, it's inspirational because there are so many people, I think, that struggle through these things and don't make those decisions. And exactly as you said, you know, the eating disorder sort of started from you trying to control the grades, trying to keep, trying to do better, trying to get that control in your life. And then you did get the grades. And then, as you say, the prize was university and now you're at a place where actually everything you did to get that prize has now led you to a place where you can't even collect it. Yeah. And I think it, I can't imagine how hard that was to give up. And was that, I mean, when you made that decision and you, and you decided to come home, did that exacerbate at all the, the anorexia because of your treatment? Were you able to get through it? What happened for you with that? 
Um, so to take you back to that time, really, um, yeah, making that decision was was the hardest decision. That was it was it was a lose lose situation, really, mm. um, because I I wasn't going to feel instantly better either way. Um, but I guess I guess what kept me going at that time was um was my faith in all honesty that's that's been a huge part of my story and I probably should have mentioned at the beginning like I I joined a church when I was 11 years old Mm. um Sutton Vineyard Church Uh, my uh sister decided when she was 16 I think that she was just gonna go to church like we weren't a church going family at all (laughs) and then a year later she said to me look they have this youth group they have they play games and they like go bowling together. Do you want to come join? (laughs) And I was like, okay, like that sounds fun. I got there and then I went back every week and gave my life to Jesus. And that was a huge thing. So coming to that place of having to give up uni, my faith was a massive driving factor in that because I had to hold on to the truth that God had bigger things for me. Than what was going on in this present moment and don't get me wrong it was it was hard it was hard it's it's not easy by any means to be like god you've got this like everything's going to be fine so I may as well be happy now um it was a really long road from that point but actually my faith was something that really upheld me that was interesting and kind of one of the complexities I wonder or just I'd love for you to talk to us about is actually so you you became a Christian before all this started, before the control and everything else. Was there anything that was almost like an added burden because of the faith? Or do you feel like it lifted the burden because of the faith? Sort of like, were you, uh, you know, we I've talked to somebody previously and they, they talked about like sort of feeling like you're letting God down by, you know, doing this or by trying to control things or, or did you feel just the opposite that it was actually it lifted the burden a bit and allowed you to get free or both? (laughs) Yeah, I think, oh, that's a really good question. I think that's, it it would probably come into a bit of both. Um, It started off as something that was really freeing and really great. But as as the anorexia started to take hold, as my OCD worsened, um, I started to realise that my faith became something that was almost quite compulsive. Mm. Um, but then I, I remember, um, I always remember back to when I was 12 and I first gave my life to Jesus, um, the words, um, just a random woman who was praying for me at this, at this Christian festival. And she just said, Maisie, you know, it's a clean slate every day. And when my faith started to become something that was more compulsive, something that I felt like I had to do. I always turned back to what that woman said to me um, and what I believe that God was saying through her of actually there is a clean slate every day and there is no condemnation in Christ. And that was something that kind of released me again. And then I'd kind of revert back to the habits of it being compulsive again and then be set free again. Um, And I think that's, that's quite a common thing of actually Christians 
believing the lies that they're not good enough, that they're not good enough Christians. And I had that narrative playing in my head as well as you're not smart enough. You're not skinny enough. Yeah. You're not a good enough Christian. Like what's, what's the point in this? Like work harder. Um, and I think it was only as I started to get help that I realized actually my faith is there and God is there to free me, uh, to set me free from the lies that I'm believing in my head. And since that point, my faith has been an extremely freeing thing, but it's been about getting my headspace in the right place to, to receive the grace that God has for me. I love that idea of the clean slate every morning. Cause I mean, you know, even, even people who might not be of faith, it's, it's so freeing, isn't it? That every, every morning's a new morning morning and, you know, and you have a clean slate every single morning, um, th- especially through your faith. Um, so we're, we're at a place now where you've left, decided to leave uni, you've come back, you're getting your treatment done. Um, and tell me a bit about what happens here for you. Cause again, you know, this is you, you, when we talk about playing the hand you're dealt, you know, you've been handed this, this just hand of cards and the way that you're playing them is so mature and so full of the desire to get better. And that that's what keeps coming through to me is you listened to that small voice and you made some decisions. You called the GP, you went off to uni, you recognize I, I need to just, something needs to change. And again, you played that next card and it's like, I just the maturity around you wanting to get better and you taking those proactive steps. I think it's inspirational. Um, so where where are we now? What's happened? You've come back. You're living at home. You've decided to go into full time recovery. And and what happens for you? Yeah. So firstly, that's that's really kind of you because even even at this point, there's there's still that little niggly feeling of, oh, you're you're not an inspiration. You're not anything like that so that's that's really kind that's really helpful I hold you on. absolutely are and I, I I have no doubt that there's going to be someone listening to this that you're going to help as well so thank you well, for being I mean I'll say it at the end but thank you for this so much really and <laughs> <laughs> um, so to kind of take you to that point really um I guess I should tell you a bit about what what treatment looked like for me yeah um so that you can kind of get get to grips with what my daily life then became um, so when I left uni, I um, was under the outpatient service at Springfield, which meant I had one hour long appointment a week um, in which I was weighed and we'd make meal plans and talk about the thoughts that were going on behind food. Um, and I was put on a, a weight gain diet. Um, so in order to fulfill the requirements of this diet um, it also included a massive life lifestyle change um which in essence was i wasn't allowed to go out really mm. I, unless someone drove me there okay um i wasn't allowed to walk anywhere um i would nap quite a lot because i just had no energy um and my day would revolve around, I had to get these set meals and snacks in. Um, and then as they started to realize that I was I was committed to treatment, um, they got me on the waiting list for um, something called the day unit. Um, and the day unit 
was a place it's it's not inpatient treatment so I wouldn't live at hospital um but it's more than outpatient treatment because it's every day oh wow okay so I went from one appointment a week um and that was that was really hard that was really hard to try and manage it your yourself entirely um and then part of the story again is I decided in that outpatient time in that season of waiting for a place to come up in the day unit it was all I was praying for for this place to come up um I decided to get baptized um and I don't think it was a coincidence that the fact that two weeks after I was baptized I got a place in the day unit I like for me that's that's a massive thing of I've been praying for this for for months to the point where my nurse was saying we may have to go down another route of treatment because this like it's not looking like a place is going to come up soon to we've got you a place you're coming in on Monday um which is crazy so then when I was in the day unit um I had to go in from eight till four every weekday um and it was it was in Springfield Hospital and it was basically (laughs) the only way to describe what it what it looks like there is a bit like an old people's home (laughs) okay so you go in and there's there's a kitchen and a dining area and there's therapy rooms but then you come to the main lounge um and this lounge is just a series of red armchairs um and everyone personalizes their own armchair with what they have there's only eight places available in in London um yeah, eight spots available in this day unit for all of London. Whoa. Which is, yeah, crazy. Um, and basically we'd go there and we'd eat breakfast, morning snack, lunch, afternoon snack, and then be sent home with dinner. Um, and it was, it was intense. It was intense with the sheer quantity of food that you were having to eat to gain the weight you would get weighed twice a week you would have like physical health checkups once a week you would have therapy you'd have group therapy you'd have group outings all of this stuff um so that's what my day-to-day life looked like from um I think it was end of April oh gosh testament knowledge 2018 to um February 2019 um that is a long time yeah it was it was 10 months that is a long time 10 months of doing day unit treatment and then I got discharged from there because you get to basically the way it works is you get to a point where you you reach your target weight and then you have to um you have to gain three more times after your target weight and then you'd be put on a maintenance diet for six months and then you can be discharged um so I'd done all that I'd got to my weight and I was maintaining it and then you're discharged back into outpatient treatment again um and I was in outpatient treatment for about another year wow 
and going back to one appointment a week so it was it was a long journey and a lot of things changed during that time for sure <laughs> and did, did your other people so you said there were eight of you eight chairs in the room um did everyone else have success or was it no 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 um sadly not like lots of people ended up having to go into inpatient treatment which was where you live at hospital it sometimes involves things like feeding tubes and really horrible things mm. like that I'm I'm so fortunate that I, I never got to that place um but for so many people the the hold of anorexia is just too strong um because it is well it's it's the mental illness with the highest mortality rate um just because it <laughs> it's one of those mental illnesses that has such an adverse physical impact because all of your decisions come out and are expressed through food hmm. but eating disorders are not about food at all really they're they're about control oh, yeah um so yeah really sadly some people some people don't have that success and there's there's a statistic that the way recovery works is in thirds so a third of people um get better and live a completely normal life a third of people live with an eating disorder but they function in everyday life but they have an eating disorder and a third of people don't recover um which is heartbreaking is really heartbreaking and this can be men women any age I was I was mixed with everyone um at, at um the day unit and in treatment so it's hard it's really hard and when I think back to that place it's 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 really um uncomfortable to think about of actually how close was I towing the line to not being in that successful third um and that's that's a really scary thing to think about yeah and and what I, I just want to pick up very quickly on something you said there that's really important for people to note is that it happens to men as well, because I think a lot of times people think of, of anorexia nervosa to be something that's, that affects women only mm-hmm. um, and teenagers only. And it's, it's not, it's, it's all ages. It's all, it's, you know, it's males and females. And, you know, I think um, first off, I know the also just mentioning the fact that it's a mental illness is so important as well, because I think a lot of people just have a misunderstanding of what it is um and that the fact that it is all about that need to control something and so the one thing that you can absolutely control is what you eat what you put in your body so all right well let's let's go let's go uh, first of all also how amazing that you're in the top third and i mean that is just that is that's incredible and and do you think, I mean, we, we talked about how you have the supportive family. We talked about how you got into this program. We've talked about your faith. You know, are there other things that really helped you to become that top third? Is there anything you can kind of encourage people in terms of, you know, you talked about listening to that small voice. Was there anything that really helped you kind of unlock that to help you move to that successful top third? I think it, for me, it was getting to a place of, trusting learning how to trust myself again Mm. that was a massive thing because when you're at the start of treatment 
you have to accept that you can't trust yourself at all, that you're making really poor decisions and you've got to trust what someone else is saying. So for me, that meant on my first appointment, I got told that I could do whatever I wanted to do the rest of the time. But for that week, I had to eat one Weetabix with milk and orange juice for breakfast every day. That was the target. That was it. And I had to trust this woman because my head was saying, you're not going to do that. But I had to do it. And then you get to a point of realizing through therapy and through self-exploration that you need to learn how to trust trust your own head again Mm. and that takes reshaping your thought patterns and negative core beliefs need to be broken down and that's a lot of work but I think my piece of advice would be you've got to find that balance between trusting the professionals and relying on them but then getting to a point where they equip you to make your own decisions and to be really proactive and actually learn that you you can trust yourself again, you can make decisions that are good for you and that are healthy for you. Um, and that's a journey for sure. So I think I would say it's listening to that small voice in your head, yes, but it's it's about starting by trusting someone else, the professionals, And then making sure that you are reclaiming back um, your own thoughts, your own head, your own decision making processes. Because if not, you end up in a place where you're only trusting someone else to tell you what you can and can't do. And you're not taking ownership of of your own brain, of of your life. And that's that's the whole point of recovery, to be able to get to a place where you're you're making decisions and and you're living life and you're you're doing that independently but connected with other people <laughs> never leave treatment otherwise because if yeah. you were constantly relying on somebody else you you can never get to that place where you can leave treatment so i think that's a huge just piece of advice for people in order to help them and just kind of even relating that back to to people who who aren't dealing with a mental disorder of anorexia but might be dealing with kind of those constant voices in your head that you're not good enough. So, you know, people that have that, you know, imposter syndrome or people that just are constantly putting themselves down. It's also that kind of changing that dialogue in your head as well and changing those voices and and creating that positive affirmation and actually dismissing those voices as being incorrect. Um, and I, I don't know if that's something similar that you, you had to go through as well. Absolutely. And I think, yeah, regardless of whether you have an eating disorder or not, I think for the most part, everyone is their own worst critic. Yeah. For sure. Because only you know the best way to destroy your own brain. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's, it's a bit of a flaw in the system, in all honesty. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but um, it's a huge thing. And I was, I was told at the very beginning of recovery that recovery is my choice. Um, you've either got to choose to change those thought patterns or sit in them. Hmm. And you can have as many people as you want telling you that you're great and that you're worth so much more than this um, and you need to be treating yourself better. But actually, 
it comes back to that clean slate every day. You have to wake up every morning and choose recovery. And I still have to do it now, even though I'm completely discharged from treatment and it's, it's a long road. It's actually waking up every day and going, do you know what? I, I am worth something. I am, I am some, someone of value. I am a good friend. I am loving. I am kind and holding on to those things of your identity because no one else can hold on to them for you. Um, so I think there is, there is a real sense of having to claim recovery for yourself and claim those positive thought patterns. Um, it doesn't just, the negative thought patterns don't just go away. Unfortunately, you've just got to, you've got to learn how to navigate them. Gosh, you're making me super emotional. I, that's, I I think that's absolutely unbelievably beautiful. And I think so many of us could actually take something from that and wake up every morning and recognize our value. I just looked at the time, Maisie, and I cannot believe that we are almost at time. And I have to ask you our final two questions <laughs> before I let you go. And I feel like we have to have you back to hear the rest of your story. Um, but along this journey, what have you discovered about yourself? I, I've discovered so many things, but I think my main thing would be, it would be that I... I have a I have a story worth telling. I have a life worth leading and actually I bring something to the table that no one else can. And I hope that anyone listening to this will realize that actually they have something that is unique that is that is special that only they can bring. So if that means doing a super hard recovery journey or if that means getting out of bed in the morning and making the next right decision, which might just be to get up and go and have a shower that day and get into clean pajamas. That's okay. That's okay. It's actually knowing that you have value and that whatever that looks like on a day-to-day basis, you, you are so worth looking after. Um, I think that's, yeah, that's probably my main piece of advice. I love it. And I think that will resonate with so many listeners. And again, what is the best piece of advice that you have ever received? I would probably say the best piece of advice I have ever received would be, would be, it's, it's a very simple one, but just, I think it was my mum that said it to me of don't give up on yourself because we're not going to give up on you. Mm. And that was a huge thing. And for me, that really highlighted how you can be interconnected with people while still remaining independent of actually, yes, I have to make choices. Um, I have to make choices on a day-to-day basis um, for, for good or for bad. And that's, that's down to me but at the same time I've got a community of people around me that will hold me up when I fall down um and that was that was a huge thing to realize that I've got so many people rooting for me but I'm the one who's got to do the thing (laughs) yeah that's amazing well 
Maisie, you've been an absolute amazing guest. Thank you for your honesty. Um, and as I said, you are an absolute inspiration, even if you don't feel like it. Um, you've done an amazing thing and your story is so powerful. And there's so much that, I mean, I'm, I'm taking so much away from this. And I just thank you so much for your time today. No, it's been my pleasure. Thank you for having me. Wow. I hope you enjoyed this week's episode. Join us next week when I speak to Dan Farag all about moving from couples ice skating to being a director of innovation and practice. Don't forget to subscribe, like, and comment below. And I hope that you are one step closer to discovering the undiscovered you.